0: Hi, this is Tom Salome of Device Talks. Welcome to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Surgical robotics presents an enormous opportunity for companies. There are surgeon shortages, sporadic healthcare, and miraculous technological advancement in both robotics and communications. So to understand where this sector is headed, we invited senior executives from Intuitive to share their company's impressive story. Change is coming. Consider these upcoming episodes to be guideposts for the future to follow. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Intuitive Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi, and I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with Catherine Rieger. She is Senior Director of Human Factors and User Research at Intuitive. And I've been hearing so much more about human factors and human factor design. Uh, it's just one of those, those terms that keep emerging and appearing. And, and, and it's something I love to talk about because it's something, I guess, probably partly because I understand. But it also seems so uh, so important. I was going to say so intuitive, but it is intuitive because it's intuitive talk. So Catherine and I will talk about how human factor engineering design works into Intuitive's DaVinci systems and its other systems, and why it feels as if it's really setting the course for the surgical robotics industry. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Catherine Rieger, and I know you will too. But before we begin this conversation, I'd like to bring in our episode's sponsor, Elsner Engineering Works. I'm speaking with President and CEO, Bert Elsner. Bert, I understand Elsner has a, a great history. Could you tell us a bit about the
1: company? Thanks, Tom. Our company today is a lot different than when we started. Uh, my grandparents immigrated from Germany in the 1920s and ended up here in Hanover, Pennsylvania. My grandfather, Frank, was a highly skilled mechanical engineer. He founded the company to help local businesses with their challenges and provide jobs for those who wanted to join him. There are a lot of stories in between, but today we have a team of just over 100 and operate out of a 120,000 square foot facility. We're still solving the problems of our customers for automation, but have grown from serving the local area to partnering with companies all over the world.
0: That's great, Bert. We'll hear more from Bert Elsner and Jay Roth, Director of Sales, a little later in this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Elsner Engineering right now, go to its website, elsnereng.com. That's E-L-S-N-E-R-E-N-G.com. Well, Catherine Rieger, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank
0: you. Nice to be here. I'm hearing more and more about human factors these days, uh, so I'm excited to understand. I hope by the time you're done telling me what it is, I'll understand, but that's not a guarantee. You may have to tell me twice what human factors really means and why it's become so important and why it's obviously important and intuitive. But before we get to educating me about that, I'd love to understand how you got into the human factors game and into MedTech because you've been working in med tech, but also I think outside of MedTech tell me about uh, how you got here today.
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah. And this is kind of, I've, I've been teaching for, for about 20 years as well. And I start all my students this way. I have tra- started you know, massive corporations, CEOs, and, and their understanding of human factors. So I'm going to start you the same way.
0: All right. Fantastic. Um, and it,
2: it all started with the Presto hot dogger. Um, which <laughs> if you Google it, you will see is not a very good, well-designed product. Um, <laughs> it, it basically was designed to, I think it was in the 60s, uh, I think, maybe 50s, even 60s, designed to cook six hot dogs in 60 seconds. But essentially, it had these big spikes that you impale the hot dogs into each end. And it it, it essentially was a circuit that you completed, like good old-fashioned science project and cook the hot dogs. Anyways, Dr. Sal Saracci at uh, Tufts University, undergrad. Uh, I was a journalism major, thought I was going to be the next Katie Couric. Went in, took a class called bad product design. And indeed, first day, first minute, presto hot dogger, put in front of me. And I was asked, I, who later became my mentor, first mentor, you know, so do you think this is a good product? Instinctually, you look at it and the answer is no, it's a terrible product. It's got these massive spikes and and all, you know, and you no know, people can get hurt. And he says, why? And, you know, you talk through the discussion of why. And it, some of the some of the points are very obvious about why that it's, it's so bad. Some of them you start thinking and getting deeper in, into the conversation. The fun part and the turning point came when he then said to me, OK, so how do you fix it? How do you make it better? And it was just the most fun exercise and got my brain just kicking in a way, utilizing you know, science and art and math. And it was just amazing. And so it all kind of went off. And, and I called home and I said, hey, I'm declaring my major. Uh, to my parents, who all come from a health background, said, oh, great, what is it? And my, my brothers are all biomedical engineers, and I say, engineering psychology. Pretty certain my dad only heard the word psychology and says, can you get a job in that? <laughs> I think so. Later, the term was reframed on Norman himself, reframed it, became human factors. So I, I did my undergrad in, in uh, bachelor of science in human factors engineering, which is at Tufts, the focus was chemical engineering and cognitive psychology, so a nice mix. It was about half and half. So science, stuff,
0: science, and math. I don't know how you ended up in journalism in the first place. Like,
2: I know. I did know. you make friends?
0: Did people? Did you hang out with folks?
2: <laughs> this was a good mix of liberal arts and engineering. So I, I, I good could for be nerdy and cool at the same time, which basically means you're nothing. <laughs> you're <even laughs>
0: anywhere, you canceled each other out.
2: Exactly, jack jack of all trades. Yeah. So, so from there, I, it was the late 90s. It was the dot-com bubble. I, I, again, we've, we've now established I did not make the cool choice, which was to <laughs> go there. I ended up doing some medical and military systems work uh, for a while where it pretty quickly became apparent that I didn't know enough about computer science, which was the wave of the future at the time. So I did embrace computers just in a different way and didn't ride the, the curve there. But I went back and got my master's in uh, human-computer interaction from School of Computer Science at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And there was my first kind of foray into the more human-centered design aspects of human factors and and really a little bit more on the technical end, less on the you know engineering was the focus before and kind of got a little bit more technical and and the how-to and mixed with design. I ended up from there moving out to California. That kind of launched me into the auto industry. Mm-hmm. where I, I worked on all the onboard computer applications, the idea being to limit driver distraction, you know, onboard, all the onboard computer applications. So obviously car navigation systems, but also at the time it was novel collision avoidance systems, uh, all those types of bells and whistles that are now standard in cars was still just, just coming out on the market back then. And there was a lot of talk about how that would influence our, our safe driving. So it was really looking at use there from, you know, another area of of industry where the consequences are, could be dire. So some similarities to medical, but not quite back into medical yet. But from there, I did launch back into medical and where I've, where I've been probably since the early 2000s, finished up again, early 2000s with a PhD in engineering from USC. So that's. Yeah, I kind of of got back more into the biomed engineering. So I ended up as a biomedical engineer, mom and dad. You can be proud, (laughs) full circle. But I ended up within MedDevice and Intuitive is just the place to be. It combines everything that I kind of built throughout my my career for for human factors. It's somewhat of, you know, I can say this because I'm there. It's the mecca of HF. We get to work on every aspect of systems from the training to Mm -hmm. the labeling to the instructions for use and of course the robot itself and all the interactions there
0: i'm sure your your biomedical engineer brother is probably very jealous right
2: they're not they don't even work in engineering that's the funny part oh. you, know, you know we got one doctor and the other is some sort of business guru so gosh i'm the yeah. only engineer today <laughs> that works in engineering
0: <laughs> that would explain why you're their favorite child so
2: yeah Maybe. so
0: Let's talk about how human factors fits more broadly into into medical devices. has uh, Have human factors always been a critical part of medical devices, or was it initially an afterthought and it's only recently become an issue or or a requirement? We'll I'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Elsner Engineering Works. I am speaking with Jay Roth, Director of Sales. Jay, tell me, how does Elsner work with medical device companies?
3: Yeah, Elsner's been building machinery for a wide range of markets for a long time. As far back as the 70s, we were building machines like rewinders for exam table paper, and we've built some specialized equipment for dental headrest covers, surgical drapes with patches and fenestrations, depending on which part of the body the surgeon needs to access. A few years ago, we built a dedicated machine for cotton undercast padding. I think it was the most slitters we ever included on one machine. It would take a 50-inch wide web of cotton and slit it into 2-inch, 3-inch, 4-inch, or 6-inch finished rolls that the doctor would use to wrap your broken arm before they put a cast on it. Bert,
0: you mentioned automation at the top of our interview. What is automation and how do your customers justify it?
1: Well, typically the justification comes from increasing output of finished products significantly. Reducing headcount is also important. Improving quality or improving repeatability is also part of it. The result is still the same, but today we're seeing a new challenge. More and more customers are unable to keep a full slate of operators. Jobs are going unfilled, and that can mean less product to sell or orders going unfilled. With automation, we provide machines that don't take a vacation or need to deal with family issues or other personal challenges. There's also something to be said for limiting the number of people touching a product. In other markets, it's not that big of a deal, but with medical, the more we can limit possible contamination, the better.
3: Jay Roth, anything to add? Automation is also about making the operators' lives better. We've removed some really labor-intensive tasks with our equipment. I've seen cases where operators could only run a machine or complete an operation for 30 minutes at a time. They were rotating people to prevent repetitive motion injuries or, or just fatigue. It's great to go back to those facilities after a machine's installed and see how much happier the team can be. It opens the door for more rewarding work. Some get worried when we first visit, thinking that they're going to be replaced by a machine. Then they realize it's really about making their lives better.
0: Let's talk about how human factors fits more broadly into into medical devices. Has uh, have human factors always been a critical part of medical devices or was it initially an afterthought and it's only recently become an issue or, or a requirement?
2: Yeah, the traditional trajectory for for human factors in med device for big manufacturers has been, oh, we got to do what in early 2000s about when I came back into into medical, some of the major regulations started coming down with respect to what we had to do and so our FDA, and international regulatory agencies were smartening up to the fact that all of these errors or problems uh, that we we're having are complaint tracking. There's this little box where if you can't find anything wrong with the product, there's nothing mechanically wrong with it. There's no, you know, we we've tested it. We can't find anything that broke or anything that's missing or cracked. I just would check a little box and say, eh, must be user error, user error, user error, user error. And I make that difference because that that is important to the evolution of, of human factors. And so eventually that bucket got bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, are people just dumb? Are people getting dumber? <laughs> why, why are all these mistakes happening? What's what's going on? And so they kind of smartened up and said, hey, manufacturers, we're going to put you on the hook for this, right? Like, we think that maybe it's your product that is leading to, to these mistakes happening. And so that's really when some, and that's following suit from human factors and aviation and military. Mm-hmm. Kind, of, kind of the same story there. And so they started to, to hold us accountable for showing that the product demonstrating that the product is safe and effective. And so that's where that we had to validate that at the end stage. So human factors, while it's most effective if you start at the beginning and work throughout product development, most manufacturers are on the curve of you start backwards <laughs> and you work your way forward because you, you basically make a submission. And they're like, Hey, where's your human factors validation? The what? And then, you know, tough, Usually they'll hire some external consultants, come in, do that validation for them. And then they realize we need this experience in-house and, hey, we'd probably find fewer problems later had we inserted human factors uh, science a little bit earlier into the equation. And so it sort of evolved from there. I happened to be at a company early stage where it was built into the design. Uh, So it was kind of fun was myself and, and a lot of user interface designers on the team. And when that regulation came down, my boss literally put it on my desk and said, hey, you're the engineer of the team. You're going to figure this out. <laughs> and so he's like, figure out how we build this into our risk management system. So for me, I've actually been a part of that evolution since that, that started. So it's And it's still evolving. Like we are still in working group with FDA, with other robotics companies working together as an industry to determine what it looks like moving forward, because it is different than combination devices, or pharma, yeah. or more simple medical devices. There are some pretty big differences, mainly related to the complexity of, of our product suite. So
0: human factors, it's, it's essentially your your job is to study the interaction between the human and, and the machine and to make sure it's as smooth as possible. Is that...
2: Exactly. We are, okay. we are the glue between the people who make the product and the people who <laughs> use the product.
0: <laughs> is um, there,
2: and, and they're not the same.
0: Is there a uniformity across... Med tech, in some cases with some devices, that there's a rule that every button that does this needs to go here and every button that goes yeah. needs to go there. Is there any sort of common platform in that regard or common understanding? Or is it pretty much we'll put the button wherever we feel the button should go?
2: Well, so to answer that, we kind of go back to what's what's required is to demonstrate safety and in effect. Intuitive sits in a in a unique position. And I sit in a unique position leading the team that that basically defines what that interaction is. Because we are the pioneers, there's quite a bit of of, a little bit of pressure on us. We're defining and setting those expectations for for what's out there in in the field. So we have to be very responsible about what interaction, mental models we invoke in our users. And, And of course, we need to demonstrate they're safe and effective. When other folks come in or even for us, when we try to build new interaction models, we've now set the, the standard. And so when we try to change that, it, it gets a little difficult. And you hit on exactly a, a, it's a very active conversation now within industry because clearly there's, there's competition on the field. So there's multiple manufacturers in this space and they can't build exactly what we built. So it's going to look different. And what will that do to our users? Something called negative transfer within our our team. So am I going to, for instance, I rent a lot of cars because I travel. So my car has the collision avoidance or the backup cameras. And when I get into a car, if I get overly reliant on like a lane change signal and I get into a, a rental car that doesn't have that mm-hmm. and I don't hear that, that changes my behavior because I'm expecting to hear that and I don't. And so my reaction time is slower because I have to process that bit of information. My brain goes, oh, it's different. And so there's, there are general understanding and rules and, and regulations, to, to be fair, guidance documents uh, that talk about human factors concepts in general, like red, all mm. of us, red, bad, stop, know <laughs> fire, right? Like all sorts of bad things come, come when they we, when we see the, the color red. That's standard. We're not going to change right. that. But more nuanced things like flashing blue lights. What does that mean in robotic surgery? That does mean something to da Vinci users. And so if that da Vinci user then goes onto a different robotic platform, it could have an implication of how they use it and thus when that user comes back onto da Vinci, it may also impact their understanding of that blue flashing light.
0: That's a fascinating. So we have to point.
2: like yeah, we have to like take that whole thing into consideration.
0: So you, you must be exhausted, like going through the day, looking at every interface and every button and every light and thinking like, this could be better this way or or that. But that's a real fascinating point though, because as, as more robotic companies emerge with their own systems and you've got surgeons bopping back and forth, I could see a real frustration of, you know, oh, it's not here on this one. It's there on that one. And five seconds in a surgery can be literally life or death.
2: True. It's true. And, and like I said, it's, it's, it's a burden, but it's also a privilege yeah. to, to get it right, right? Because good design in here all the time is invisible. If it's in the right place, if it's the right color, if it's the right sound, then you don't even notice that it's there. You're going to notice when it's not there. And right. so negative transfers, hopefully, if we've done our jobs right, won't be an issue for us because we've our company's called intuitive. Like that is what <laughs> we're after, right? Is is to make this thing the most intuitive out there. And they invested we invest a ton of time yeah. in, into that. I mean, it's somewhat mind-boggling how many uh, case observations or interviews or focus groups, lab studies, the traditional usability testing. And uh, we even have like a mobile OR that's a truck that goes out to users. I mean, when I when I look at our operational numbers, we are hundreds of studies per year, thousands of user interactions that we document, log, analyze. It is intuitive, has a real commitment to this space. So they give me a lot, they give us a lot to work with, um, which is nice.
0: That's great. So you, you sort of anticipated my question a bit. How do you engage with the surgeons prior to the system being built in the design phase and get their take on where this button should be and where that button should be and whether the light should be blue or green or yellow? We'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Elsner Engineering Works. Bert and Jay, let's hear from both of you. Why do you think your clients choose Elsner?
1: Well, I think we have a couple things going for us. One will be our vast range of experience in over 87 years. We've built over 800 different machines over the years. Each customer presents a new challenge, but with that type of history to draw from, our engineers always have something to start with. The process that we are looking to automate might have nothing in common with the last machine we built, but there's always some link. We usually start with a master world of product. So web handling and tension control have a crossover. We have begun to use more and more robotics on our more complex machines. We started with a robot that dispenses glue for water filters. That experience lent itself to pick and place operations and using robots for line following, folded sheet handling and alignment, and a host of other applications. Another benefit is our vertical integration. We operate one of the largest machining and fabrication shops in our area. We have over 60,000 square feet of machine shop that leaves us in control of our own product and quality. We have a full staff of engineers involved in every aspect of our project. We have electricians building our electrical panels in house and completing the machine wiring. Our assemblers and service techs are with the machine from the first bolt of installation to our customer's factory. We are a full service company.
3: I think made in the USA is a big deal these days. We've just come out of all sorts of travel restrictions that added to the support stress of international machine builders. Our techs have been on the road throughout the COVID pandemic. We have people on call 24-7 for some of our customers to make sure they get all the support they need. We've put people on planes with zero notice when a, when a customer is down. I don't think you'll find that level of support very many places.
0: And finally, Bert, what sort of changes do you see coming in the future for Elsner and for the medical device industry?
1: Looking to the future, I see connectivity as a big key. For several years now, we've been shipping machines with ethernet modules installed to allow our team to connect remotely. Further, we have an app that provides customers with real-time data for their equipment. I can open my iPad and check on the status of the machines in our tech center. I can get emailed reports of downtime, production, or whatever I need to make good business decisions. This technology is going to keep improving and we will keep up with helping our customers grow in efficiency and comfort with their Elsner machinery. We even have a customer utilizing augmented reality glasses with our service technicians to fix problems without getting on a plane or moving from their office. We continue to be on the cutting edge of technology all around.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much, Bert Elsner and Jay Roth of Elsner Engineering Works for joining us on this episode of Intuitive Talks. And of course, thank you to Elsner Engineering for sponsoring this episode of Intuitive Talks. If you'd like more information about Elsner, go to its website. Elsner, That's Elsnereng.com. That's E L S N E R E N G.com. That's great. So, you, you sort of anticipated my question a bit. How do you engage with the surgeons prior to the system being built in the design phase? And get their take on where this button should be and where that button should be and whether the light should be blue or green or yellow.
2: Yeah. I mean, from the safety and effectiveness standpoint, it really comes down to human performance. And so that is the main driver or thing that we measure, right? So data, data is the language of intuitive. So we speak, we speak data, we're engineers, (laughs) we're scientists. We take a very scientific approach to this. Of course, there's that art piece that we talked about earlier that's, a lot of that qualitative information, and so it's definitely more than just asking, "Where do you think the button should go? What color do you think it should be?" We do that because that's important. Those that sets expectations and perceptions, and gives us an understanding of where people think they are at. But what we really care about, where the rubber meets the road, is what happens when you're in front of that system and when you use it. Right. And so it's it's a process. So early stage, more of that qualitative discussion or, or for us even observing in the field, looking for pain points, looking for opportunities. Where can we hop in to, to make your job easier, to, to build something that, or change something, modify something that would give you more information to, that would help you do your job better. And we look at physical aspects, simply like anthropometry, ergonomics. We look at perceptual. Can you see it? Can you hear it? Just because I put a big flashing blue light on my machine doesn't mean you're seeing it in the throes of service, right. right? And so we need to make sure that, that what we're putting out there is being perceived in the way that we anticipate or, or need it to be in order to optimize that that human performance. Cognition is more about information processing and decision-making. That's a big, big black hole <laughs> of, uh, of topics. We could talk for two hours on that one, but social, environmental, I'm looking at all those factors and, and gathering as much data as we can. And it's our job to translate that into design.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I will say we do a, a lot of collecting. And then where our team is skilled is that translating, how are they interacting with each other? How can I optimize that interaction between those factors so that my human machine interaction is, is better so that that human is performing better?
0: Are surgeons more or less attuned, or more or less, do they care more or less about where the buttons are than perhaps someone driving a car? Uh, are they just look I want to get the surgery done. As long as this thing gets the surgery done, I'm fine. Or are they very, very cognizant of, well, this was difficult because I had to keep putting my hand up up here like this. Where do they fall on that scale?
2: I would say both. <laughs> <And> both <ends. laughs> they, they, they are actually somewhat polarizing. Um, and one individual can, can be both. Interesting. I I think within surgery, their number one priority is the patient. They're not worried about where is this button, what's happening, what's going on. But afterwards, they'll talk to us about it. Right. If I, if we dig in, in our studies and and we're discussing, or we see something, you know, we see them move their hand a a little bit to the right of of where it needed to be. And I'm like, that seemed like an unnecessary movement. Let's discuss what caused that. They'll be the first ones to be like, you guys got it wrong. Let me tell you, yeah. what's, um, they're very passionate about the system and about helping us. Great community of customers and users who are willing to share their time. Like I said, we we talk to a lot of them and they, it's a lot of time that they invest with, with us. And so we listen. They're not always right. That's just human nature. It's not their, their fault. That is, our perception doesn't always match the reality of our performance. And so Those are some of the fun moments when we get to illuminate that to to some of our users who are so adamant that adding a pedal is going to be the best way to do something. And Mm -hmm. and we we show them an alternate way to do it. And they're like, oh, you're right. That was better. That was faster. (laughs) We can show them the data. Those are really rewarding moments.
0: Has the the interface with DaVinci, has that changed much over the past, let's say the past decade or so? (laughs) <laughs> For
2: sure. <laughs> For sure. And I haven't touched before, one. Long so... before I joined. Yeah. Um, of course, as with any technology, it's it's definitely evolving. Our current generation of products is is still evolving, right? It's it's not a, a product where we build it, we ship it, we never look at it again. It is a constant upgrade. We know that those products are in the field and we take it very seriously to ensure that they are the most usable safest, most effective products that that we can. And that's, that's our duty. That's our post-market surveillance program. So we are constantly updating whole teams dedicated to that, those sustaining projects. And it's not, it's not all fixes, right? They're definitely, how can we improve this? And then of course, all the way through, all the way through working with very early stage, future forward looking applications and, and getting our input in there as well commitment to, to both.
0: Interesting. Does the interface on DaVinci, has it influenced uh, Ion and your other systems as well? Is there is there a similarity between the three where all the buttons are in this, the general vicinity on each different model?
2: There has to be. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the idea is that all of these products work seamlessly together.
0: Mm, and true.
2: so okay. much of it should be invisible to the user. And, and those are conversations that we've had, as with any company we may you know, acquire components or features or sometimes even whole product lines from from other companies. And you need to integrate that, not just in branding and look and feel. That's definitely part of it, but that's not the part that my team is is necessarily driving. We are driving to ensure that similar user experience. You hop on a robot or an ion or and you know this is intuitive. Mm-hmm. I got it. This 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 works the same, expected expect it the same goes back to those mental models and that negative transfer we don't want to create those problems in our own generation of, of products and our across our own portfolio so 100% we have you know we're working to develop and learn over time to your point have we evolved yes continually evolving and we continually put that knowledge back into our design system back into our consistent design language across the, the products so once we make a rule and we challenge those rules, We've had, you know, full solutions that are ready to ship or where HF comes in and says, sorry, Human Factors uh, comes in and says, hey, this is breaking a fundamental principle or rule that we have established that of, of user expectation. We, we can't do that. Um, that that doesn't match the, the rest of our family. Could be something as simple as, uh, this is an example of, of arm numbering, right? We've got four arms on the, the multi-port system and we move to it, maybe that single port system and you want to be consistent when you're looking in that you've got four instruments, despite, you know, four arms versus, you know, one arm. And that was, that was a big debate. And, and we, we did a lot of, got a lot of data to, to back up our, our final decision, which was to, to be consistent with the, uh, with the DaVinci model, uh, well, model.
0: You mentioned this a bit earlier, but if I'm designing a car or the interior of a car, we'll say, I probably I benefit a great deal by driving other people's cars. So I can, like you, this works, that doesn't work. I really like that up there. It influences your decisions. How do you do that at Intuitive where there are no other cars at the moment? Do you use things, comps from outside the industry? Do you just sort of draw from the ether? Or again, take obviously ether and surgeon, <laughs> surgeons as well. But what do you look for sort of inspiration from other, other uh, devices?
2: Well, our users are people. So yeah. our people's expectations are set by all of their influences, and so yes, to answer your question, it's it's all products that have trends and are shaping human behavior, even outside of surgery. A surgeon does not live in the OR. A surgeon mm. is influenced by, you know, family and life and iPhones and you know cars, all the same as the rest of us. And so all of those, we not only draw inspiration, but we need to understand uh, what rules. And how our surgeons think about those products and what it means to them and how it impacts their their daily work. So it's the whole gamut. We're busy. Wow.
0: <laughs> I I don't know why those conversations kind of blow in my mind, but it's very like it's kind of meta, like I don't know, this whole human interaction thing with the I always talk about the devices and I always think about the business end, but I never think about the surgeon end. So it's like, yeah, there are people. Using these things. Maybe it makes it more real. Cause I drive it's the, the whole car. care
2: team too, yeah. by the way. It goes beyond it goes beyond just the surgeon. We we often yep. think about just the surgeon, but it's the whole care team that that matters in that patient care continuum. And to be honest, we we actually look at the whole hospital ecosystem, especially for you know some of our newer digital type products that are that are coming out in the market. We've got new users that that we need to consider. And even when we introduced table motion, uh, mm-hmm. so just moving the table, and the robot moves with with the table out into the field. It was a new user group to us. All of a sudden, there's an anesthesiologist in the room who's actually responsible for the patient and moving the table. Okay. And so all of a sudden, we said, oh, there's someone we've never talked to, and we have a new user, and needed to, to understand that user and, and include them. So our user base is growing and keeps us on our toes, for sure.
0: Really, really cool. I'm wishing someone put a, a weird hot dog machine in front of me when I was in journalism school.
2: <laughs> I feel really, I feel really lucky uh, to, to have landed there because it sort of combines a lot of passions. But like I said, it'll take an hour to describe what I do. <laughs> my family, my brothers, are still like, please stop using jargon. I think.
0: Final question or area, probably, but might be one question. Uh, looking ahead. I'm wondering how you and your publicly traded company, and I don't know what you can reveal, what you can't, I'll let you decide, uh, but how will interface change for intuitive? With, I'm just thinking with new things coming in like VR and other sort of interaction. I mean, what does the next decade look like for your team and your job and 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 how surgeons and, and medical teams, care teams will will interact with, with intuitive devices?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, of course as technology is consistently evolving, we're we're looking at all of those all of those platforms. I I think where human factors is is currently where we're at in the, in the play that that we're having in the area of interest is really in that cognitive space, looking at cognitive load is a buzzword mm-hmm. uh, today. And so we're digging in pretty pretty deep in that area to to understand as we layer these you know, VR, and AR and All these new technologies, we're asking a lot of our surgeons who I will tell you, give something away here. Surgeons are not the first adopters of Mm -hmm. technology. That is not their expertise. Their expertise is is surgery. And so we're asking a lot. And we there is a large potential for overload as we're looking at at all of those layering, (laughs) these different technologies and, and potential interfaces between the human and the machine. And so we have to be real careful that we are cognizant of, of what kind of cognitive load that, that we are placing on them. And I describe this as, you know, it's a spectrum. Most people say, oh, we just want to reduce it. We just want to reduce it. It's always reduce it. I said, well, think about it. So yeah, we definitely don't want to overload to the point where your brain is, is you know, running like a slow computer because you're, you're having to think too much and weed through too much unnecessary information. But it's also, we don't want to bore you at the same time because we want you to be at your optimal peak performance. That's the whole idea behind a robot is to augment human performance, make it better, right? So I asked a simple question. Would you want your surgeon operating an autopilot? No. And so balancing cog load is is something we're looking at today and we will continue to look at as, as those new technologies come out. But I think we're also, those are almost table stakes within medical device. I think people are expecting ease of learning, ease of use. They want it to be as easy to use as their consumer devices. That's where expectations are. So we're really starting to look in areas of customer delight and and more of emotional design. It's a classic, that's kind of where human factors and design has evolved over the few years. I think Mm -hmm. med devices catching up to that where those factors are becoming important. We're looking at more than just how many mistakes did you make and did we make sure that that you're making fewer mistakes? We still have to do that. That's not going away, right? That's still an important first and foremost patient patient safety. But you know, it, it's still intuitive's mission to create products that are easy to use and, and easy to learn. And so even though we've somewhat mastered that, I I dare to say, we can start to layer in these other areas, this emotional design. It's in our field, it's it's proven science that. We feel good about something, we will perform better. Mm-hmm. If we are exhibiting negative emotions towards something, our performance will will decline. And so we're getting into some cool nuances in in that space um, that I think will give us some more room to explore what we can do, and, and as it relates to emotional design, and it's kind of it's just super exciting to build that into that evolution.
0: I keep thinking back to the three or four horrible months where I had to use a Lenovo laptop instead of my Apple and. I just it, I was so angry for that entire time. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and I just, bet
2: you make more mistakes. I you did. make more mistakes. You're gonna take longer to do it. It's and, and so we don't want do to do that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 last point, because I know so the, the other point was last, but this is more when you brought it up. You know, we're seeing more medical devices being moved into the home for healthcare at home. Pa- patients are gonna be sort of managing their own care. So I have to think that to your point, human factors is is gonna only gonna be growing in importance for the medical device industry, not only for surgical robotics, but dialysis machine dialysis machines, glucose monitors, everything else that now folks are being, I don't want to say asked to. They're they're having the ability to manage their own care. And those things need to be easy to use.
2: Yep, easy to use. And it's all about helping the user, whether yep. it's surgeon or patient, make more informed decisions, right? Perform better right? It, or behave the way we expect them to be, to behave, mm-hmm. make better choices that will lead to better outcomes, right? It's not about making that decision for them, but it's about giving them the right info at the right time in the way they can process it that optimizes that that human performance. So to us, it doesn't matter who the end user is. We'll yep. we'll talk to them all.
0: People are people. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, this has been a, a really fun conversation, Captain. Thanks for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to Elsner Engineering Works for sponsoring this episode. Thanks, of course, to Catherine Rieger for joining me on the Intuitive Talks podcast. Thanks to you for listening. Love to have you here. Please do subscribe to the Intuitive Talks podcast. Please also share this podcast on your social media channels. And when you do, please do connect with me. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, and Twitter at Tom would love to be part of any conversations that you have. Uh, that is a wrap. Thanks again for listening. And uh, again, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode of the Intuitive Talks podcast or our Device Talks weekly podcast or our other great metal device podcasts. They're all on our Device Talks podcast network. Like, follow, and subscribe on your podcast application and you will get just an abundance of of great audio med tech content coming your way.